This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. It's Tuesday, time to talk politics. And we begin in Alberta, where Danielle Smith will be sworn in as the province's 19th premier. She, of course, is the former head of the right-wing Wild Rose Party, and she has promised to challenge the federal carbon tax and to introduce an Alberta Sovereignty Act that would reject federal laws deemed against the province's interests. So this is some people wondering, is Alberta the new Quebec? And in Ottawa, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau is set to testify over the use of the Emergencies Act during the trucker convoy protests in Ottawa. And uh, protesters are also on the agenda in that inquiry. And the question is, is, is dredging all of that up again, good or bad for the federal conservatives under their new leader, Pierre Poilievre? And Bell Media is back in the spotlight, not in a good way, once again accused of mistreating and discriminating against a female employee, this time a woman of color, Patricia Juggernauth, who charges she was treated as a token. And of course, just minutes ago, the CEO of Hockey Canada and the entire board has stepped down. And now, the Recovering Politicians Panel. And let us go to our Recovering Politicians Panel. We have Charles Souza, the former Finance Minister of Ontario. We have Lisa Raitt, the former Deputy Leader of the Conservative Party of Canada. And Howard Hampton, the former Ontario NDP leader. Let's begin with Lisa. So, Finally, uh, you know, it, so much pressure, including from the prime minister saying that uh, this leadership at Hockey Canada had to go. Finally, they stepped down, Lisa. What do you make of that and the timing of it? Well, clearly, uh, lots going on today, eh, Libby. Holy yeah. mackerel. But I would say that this was something that was going to have to happen, whether or not they got to make it to the end of December, the end of the new year, to the new AGM. Really, I think they wanted to get to that point, but it became crystal clear that this was something that they could not manage for themselves. And in the best interest of Hockey Canada and of all the associations and all those kids and parents out there, they decided that they were going to step away. And there's a clean page now for whoever's going to be taking over. And that's the way forward. Um, Charles, what do you make of the fact that it has taken so long? Yeah, surprising. I mean, the government's been calling for wholesale change. Certainly, uh, the public sentiment has uh, been the same. And uh, the board, all they did was remove the chair at the time, and, and they, they kept everything else as was. And so that was uh, not enough, obviously. I mean, you take stock with the fact that corporate sponsors all fled, association withdrawing funds and restricting their participation. Um, but I guess the fundamental issue, 
and, and I, I think it's appropriate that there is wholesale change. It's for the betterment of Hockey Canada. Uh, but we also need to do better in teaching our young men to be better citizens. I mean, the core problem has to still be dealt with, and that's misconduct and the lack of consent. I just don't understand how we can get to this pace. Lisa, how does an organization dig in its heels and hang in that long? Is it just a question that they have a lot of money in the kitty, so the heck with everything else? I think it's just a fundamental misread of the situation. I mean, they did the things that a board would do, which is they hire crisis communications advisors, they put out press releases, they try to do an analysis, and they try to figure out if there's a way for them to fix their board so they can stick around, that they want to see it out to the end. But, you know, the mistakes made by Hockey Canada started 15, 20 years ago, maybe even longer, and it just came to a head with this particular group of people. And, you know, resigning unmasked means that they're doing it together. I think that makes a lot of sense. The board is cleared, the management is cleared, and now it's time to pick up the pieces and move forward. Charles, do you have a view on how they held out this long? I mean, you know, watching this go down. <laughs> I mean, oh, this, this is a textbook case study to be to be repeated and to be used as an example of what went wrong and how they acted wrong. Um, and it is all about misreading uh, the public sentiment. I mean, there are purposes and roles that these board of directors are are there for, and if it wasn't, if they're not doing their job, that it requires wholesale change. I mean, regardless of the issues that are being prevalent with some of these young men, the board has a responsibility, and in order to maintain integrity of Health Canada, of Hockey Canada, it needed to have this done, and they should have done it a lot sooner. Yeah, I mean... And, and the biggest purpose of the board is to appoint a CEO and an executive team to manage these issues, and they maintain the same executive team which was part of the problem. Well, yeah, I mean, the current, uh, the CEO who just stepped down, he's only been in the job for a very little while, though he was with the organization for more than 20 years. Uh, and and again, it's just, uh, I, I don't understand, I mean, how they withstand that kind of pressure. I, does money play a role again, Lisa? Yeah. It seems there's been abuse of some of the money. Uh, there's a, that's the other thing that's being called into question. Uh, people get complacent. And uh, a lesson here is that we're all responsible and accountable to somebody. And that's the way it should be. And uh, they misread this issue uh, for too long. Lisa, you were saying. Yeah. I, you know what, Libby, what I find interesting is that they all, and I'm not saying this is the reason why they did it, and but I, I would note that it was when parliamentarians started asking questions about personal expenses of directors that they decided that that was enough. <laughs> Maybe that was the tipping point. When they started asking them personal questions about, well, what was this dinner on it? Why did you stay in the prime ministerial suite of the Western Harbor Castle in downtown Toronto? That's when they suddenly said, oh, wait, yeah. Maybe we don't want to be here any longer. And perhaps that's what through their mind. But uh, anyway, they asked for the information. They resigned on Tuesday morning. And what happened in the middle is for them to tell their stories. Yeah, it's uh, it's really quite a saga. And uh, still with uh, corporations or organizations behaving badly or allegedly behaving badly, we have uh, a human rights case filed against Bell Media. This is just as the furor over the firing of Lisa Laflamme, the main anchor, is dying down. This time it's from 
a woman of color. I was shocked that she was a, a temp, that she was not an employee, because, you know, anytime you turn on CP24, there she would be. Um, is, is Bell Media vulnerable to this? I mean, they, again, are a huge, powerful corporation. Charles? Um, yeah, I mean, this issue is a little different than Lisa Flynn. Uh, this is about racism. Like, she's, Patricia is claiming that Bell Media, uh, and mind you, she was a freelancer for 11 years, but uh, she's claiming that she was, uh, you know, not given promotions, not given the same respect and equity as it is, as was for other individuals. And, it, it, you know, it sounds so similar to other complaints that even in government occurs, especially in the correction services industry uh, sector. It's a very toxic uh, system, and I, I, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'll be paying attention as to what happens next, but it is it's distressing for Bell Media, certainly, uh, and it should be, frankly, if, in fact, this is the kind of uh, harassment that's occurring in the workplace. Lisa, what do you make of it? I mean, obviously, there are other people of color uh, at Bell Media, so I don't know, is that, is, is that a defense of some sort? I hope not. I hope that's not the defense they're going to lead with Libby, because that's a disaster if that's the case. I mean, quite clearly, I think what I'm most impressed with is that gone are the days when people are so afraid of losing their jobs that they don't rock the boat. And good for her for rocking the boat. If she, if she feels that she did not get what was her, um, her path to, to, uh, to promotion and it has to do with racism, then absolutely. Use every ounce of power you have to bring this issue to light. And she's doing it through the judicial system. And she's not the only one. I mean, I think Jamil Jawani as well has has uh, an action or a complaint against um, somebody else in terms of exactly the same thing, which was uh, you hired me to be a person of color, but what you got was not what you wanted. Uh, yeah. And uh, it's it's very interesting to me, though. I mean, uh, it was it's a human rights complaint. It seems to me that those complaints are take a very, very long time to solve. Charles? Yeah, and more of them are occurring. So it's appropriate. And I, and I do commend her for standing up. But uh, I, I wonder, I mean, the, 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 when she was hired, she's almost admitted that it was a tokenism. And that's the problem from the get-go, right? These are individuals that are competent uh, and, and do a great job on air and elsewhere, and for her to feel as though she's got nothing left because now she's homeless of sorts, the way she's putting it, it's distressing that some people are abused this way. Uh, let's bring in Howard Hampton. Hi, Howard. Good morning. Uh, good afternoon. <laughs> well, here it's still morning. <laughs> oh, right, of course. Uh, so we're talking about this human rights complaint against Bell Media, this time from uh, Patricia Juggernaut, who is a, a woman of color. She's a weather specialist, and she's charging that she was a token. I, I was shocked that, that she was not a full-time employee because she was certainly on the air a lot. What do you make of that? And and how uh, damaging can this be against Bell Media? Again, it's just as the Lisa LaFlamme Fuhrer is dying down. Well, I, I, I think I, I think there's a bigger issue here. And it is that uh, it, it large swaths of Canadian society, um, issues of human rights and so on are still not taken with the seriousness that they should be. Uh, and 
you know, I think what we're seeing here for Bell Canada is a wake-up call, uh, and it's also a wake-up call for other large institutions, both public and private. Now, there's have a discussion, sort of a Tim Hortons discussion with people about human rights, and, and many people will just simply say, "I don't get it." Like they don't understand, you know, the the degree to which discrimination, bias, prejudice uh, exists in our society. Sometimes I think it's it's uh, it's because we live next to the United States, and it's so easy for us to look at the United States and say, "Oh, they're bad," and that uh, uh, prevents us from looking in the mirror at ourselves as a society. Um, so uh, again, uh, do you think that a human rights uh, complaint is the right way to go? You know, I'm thinking about her. The, they take apparently longer than other kinds of discrimination suits, like an employment law kind of a thing, Charles. Yeah. I'm not familiar with the processes by which it would be more to expedite the issue more quickly for her, but I suspect she does. And, 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 and I know that from others that have issued human rights complaints, even in the public sector, primarily I've seen more of that. Um, there is that's uh, more than just putting the complaint forward. They're trying to make a difference with what's happening. And right? they want people to be, understand how, how prevalent this thing is beyond just themselves. I think that's what she's trying to do as well. Um, but I, I, again, I don't know. I'm, I'm not the legal beagle on this one. Hmm. Uh, Lisa, do you have a view of that? So, uh, you know what, I think the, I think, um, so Patricia's lawyer is Catherine Marshall, who I know very well, and she's very smart, and she's picking the right venue for this complaint to go forward. And I'm sure that they're seeking justice in the, the most expedient way that they can. But again, I can't help but to say, good for them, and boy, oh boy, not great for Bell Media. Two two reporters of color coming forward, two personalities of color coming forward saying, you know, uh, we feel like we're tokens, and that's not that's not good for Bell Media. Hmm. And 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 after a furor saying, you know, uh, that a woman was retired in her fifties. Sure, for for I mean, everyone says it's not because her hair is gray. Whatever. I mean, we we're gonna I'm gonna believe what I want to believe. To be honest, Libby is presenting the facts that uh, you know the reality is that women in their fifties are susceptible to this as well, being passed over and. And when you're no longer useful, you are shown the door and, or you're not promoted. And that's, uh, it's time for people to, to have to pay the piper when it comes to these matters. Okay, you know, people want to talk about this, so I'm going to take a couple of calls. Uh, we've got Sita in Mississauga. Hi, Sita. Hi, Libby. Hi. Thanks for taking my call. So Hockey Canada not only need to change the board and look into sexual misconduct, changes that should have been done since the Maple Leaf incident, but also also need to look into discrimination to women and colored players, a chance not only to be into the league, but on, on the board also. Okay. Uh, you wanted to say something about the case of Ms. Juggernaut? Um, oh, I, that was... Oh, I was just saying, my um, father-in-law knows her parents because she's a Guyanese. Well, of course, they're being discriminated. I mean, she's been working there so long, and why why is it that she doesn't have a full-time job? Well, yeah, very good question. Thanks very much, Sita. Thank you. 
Thanks. Okay, let's go to David in Toronto. Hi. Hi. Uh, I just want to talk about Liz uh, Juggernaut. So I worked for a um, an ad agency that was owned by a multinational, and their policy was to try and keep as few full-time people on staff as possible and go with contractors. Thereby, they save money. They don't have to pay benefits. So I guess the question here is, um, we don't... I. I don't know enough about this. I haven't seen all of the, the things, and probably all of it hasn't been released. But theoretically, should she not have been given a full-time job of any sort and then been able to bid on something else? Well, uh, I, I don't know the details, but if she was there as eleven for 11 years as a freelancer and the other people doing a similar job were full-timers, uh, I, I think she might have a case. Uh, I mean, it, it, you, you would never have guessed, you know, sometimes you see people who occasionally fill in, uh, for various jobs, but she seemed to be there all the time. Uh, yeah, no, and I don't, dis- I don't disagree with you. Um, I think they, they really need to take a look at what their freelance policy is. Yep. Thanks for your call, David. Uh, let's move along with our panel. We've got Danielle Smith being sworn in and, uh, she wants to bring in this, I don't know, what do you call it? This Alberta act, uh, Howard, what do you think of that? Well, look, these things were very successful in terms of appealing to the, uh, conservative party, uh, grassroots. Now, how this is going to sell in places like Edmonton and Calgary, where there's a much broader political spectrum, um, and how it's going to sell uh, when even energy corporations, all right, want they want to move forward with something, they don't want to get caught in the middle of a federal provincial dust up that can take months, maybe years, uh, to go to the Supreme Court of Canada uh, and be heard. So. You know, this may have been really attractive for the partisans of the Conservative Party in Alberta, in particular the partisans in rural Alberta. I don't know how this is going to sell, one, in the corporate world, especially in the resource world, and how it's going to sell in cities like Calgary and Edmonton, where your interests are are much broader and where you're very much part of the Canadian economy not just the Alberta economy. Charles, what do you think? Is yeah, Alberta I, the new Quebec? Yeah, I think Howard makes a great point. It's one of the reasons I guess she's not seeking a seat in Calgary, but a more safe seat in rural mass, you know, medicine hat. Um, and she has, I guess, reversed her tone, uh, saying that she, you know she will abide by the courts and so forth. So I'm not sure what kind of teeth this new Sovereignty Act will have. But yeah, I, I think it'll create some chaos. And it is, I think... A, you know, I, I always question Quebecers, you know, any, any one of us. Are we Albertans first or are we Canadians first, right? Are we Ontarians first or are we Canadians first? I mean, most of us, I think, see ourselves as Canadian, and, and there's regional disparities and equalization programs that enable us to, you know, safeguard the interests of all of Canada. And so the Sovereignty Act goes right against that. It's a bit glitzy, and it gives uh, the, the new premier a little bit of profile, but I don't know how they're going to implement it. And I don't know what kind of special moments or occasions by which they would initiate the act that would be appropriate. I just, I don't see it. Lisa, you're a conservative. Uh, what do you think when you see a move like this, uh, conservatives moving further and further away from the center? 
it's not only moving further away from the center. I mean, Howard and Charles have already laid this out very clearly, which is the one thing that investments hate is uncertainty. And now they're introducing a whole level of uncertainty as to what regulations are going to be at play in the province of Alberta. And quite frankly, we don't have time for this. Like, we have so much investment that is needed in order to get us to net zero. What we need to do is make sure that people are rowing in the right direction. So, no, I don't think it's helpful. But I'm also not an Albertan, Libby. And Albertans are frustrated with carbon tax. They're frustrated with no access to tidewater. And they're just frustrated in general that they feel that they're not given the ability to develop their natural resources, which they own. This is how it's manifesting through a sovereignty act, which will be tied up in court forever. And it leads uncertainty. And, you know, it's, it's a shame, really. It's a shame. The election will come and we'll see whether or not the majority of Albertans agree with the direction that the United Conservative Party is taking them. Hmm. Uh, interesting. There are a lot of people who say uh, this is really great for Rachel Notley, Howard. Well, it, 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 uh, this clearly will be an issue of, uh, of debate. Uh, and uh, I think the NDP has taken a, a strong but a thoughtful position. And in, in, in Rachel Notley, if you remember, said, look, Canada is not going to stop using Alberta's energy. We may make a transition to uh, uh, to electricity, a greater transition to the use of electricity. We may make a transition uh, to the use of hydrogen. But along to get there, Alberta's energy is still going to be important. So, you know, I think she has tried to stake a position that is pro-Alberta, but acknowledges the changes that are happening in the world. Whereas I, I think uh, Ms. Smith is is going to be positioned as saying, I want the world to go back to the way it was, uh, and uh, we don't want to cooperate with the rest of Canada. I think that that becomes untenable because the fact of the matter is, to solve any of those issues that Alberta has, in other words, to move oil to tidewater, in other words, to uh, continue to use natural gas as we bridge to the greater use of electricity and hydrogen, is going to require the cooperation of the rest of Canada. And and simply saying, well, we're going to shut you out or we're going to shut you down. We're not going to cooperate, we in Alberta. I don't think, I don't see where that's a winning proposition, a winning equation for Alberta. Lisa, back in Ottawa, the Prime Minister is set to testify about the use of the Emergencies Act. Is this uh, good for the Conservative Party now under Pierre Poilievre, or is dredging it all up going to be bad for them? Well, it's definitely unprecedented. Um, I mean, the reason why there's an inquiry is because in order to invoke the Emergencies Act, the Act says you have to have an inquiry within X amount of days, I think 60 days, and then you have to report it within a year. And that is there to ensure that governments don't, in a nefarious or in a, in a way in which, a frivolous way, invoke these kinds of powers because they're serious powers. Whether or not the Conservatives are going to make hay out of it depends upon what kinds of questions the Prime Minister's asked and what kinds of questions and answers come forth from the, the Ministers in here. For me, here's the issue. It's not about what they say or what they don't say. It's how do they appear when they're saying it? Because trust is a really big, important relationship between politicians and the electorate. So if any of these ministers 
or the prime minister looks like that they're trying to prevaricate or they're not answering directly or they're trying to treat it like question period, then Canadians are going to see that. And the Conservatives may not have to do anything other than just stand back and not get in the way. Hmm. Charles, uh, what do you think? I mean, uh, according to polls, one of the things that that respondents say they uh, don't like about Pierre Poilievre was the support of the convoy. So can this uh, be, a, a you know, a negative for him? It may. You know, and I think to make a great point, this is all about trust. It's all about how people are perceived, how are the leaders are perceived. And when you lose that trust, you lose their vote, you lose their support, they tune you out. And on this Emergencies Act, um, being in, it's being headed by an independent joint parliamentary review, and it's going to have full disclosure. Unlike what's happening with the People's Commission or the legal challenge that's before the House, this will actually provide a lot of information. A lot of information that may very well illustrate how too tied uh, some of the more right-wing are to... Uh, the issue of populism, the anti-tax, the anti-controls, the anti-masking, the anti-COVID. Like, there's a whole negative scene that comes out of this, which may not play well for, for Pierre, but I don't know. In the end, uh, I, I appreciate the fact that this is happening because it's appropriate to do so, so as to put everybody in check. But it's going to put everybody in check, and I think it'll also put the opposition in check as well. Okay, I'm looking at the time, and we are all in check. So I'm going to wrap up this week's panel. Thank you so much, Charles Sousa, Howard Hampton, and Lisa Raitt. You bet. Thanks, Libby. Thank you. Okay, we'll talk again soon. Right now, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we'll talk about the latest Russian retaliation on Ukraine, brutal and targeting civilians when we return. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Zneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Russia's latest retaliation against Ukraine has sparked condemnation around the world. President Vladimir Putin of Russia ordered the largest aerial assault since the early days of Moscow's invasion, raining missiles down on at least 11 cities, killing at least 14 people. The death toll is going up. Dozens of missile strikes from Lviv in the west to Mykolaiv in the south and Kharkiv in the northeast and in Kiev as well, where residents took shelter in subway stations, all of this targeting civilians and civilian infrastructures, and this after escalating nuclear threats from Putin. So let me give the numbers out again, 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And now I am joined by Dr. Maria Popovich, the Jean Monnet Chair and Associate Professor of Political Science at McGill University, and Dr. Eric Ouellette, Professor in the Department of Defense Studies at the Royal Military College of Canada. Thank you so much for being with us. Hi, thank you. Okay, let's start with Dr. Willette. So there are some people who are saying that this is a newer and dangerous phase. Others saying this just points to the fact that Putin is desperate. How do you see it, Dr. Willette? 
Well, I think the uh, the, the latest attack is is really a revenge uh, against the uh, the bombing of the uh, the bridge on the Kursk Peninsula. But it's really more about uh, inside Russia, and though there's a lot of Ukrainian victims, uh, because the ultra-nationalist groups in Russia have been uh, becoming far more vocal and implicitly critical of the uh, regime in, uh, in Moscow. So um, he had to give them something, and uh, that was a way for him to, to do that. Because otherwise, these kind of bombings, are, from a military standpoint, have very little effect. And if anything, they just get the population more angry and more willing and determined to fight back. Dr. Popovich? Popova. Um, Sorry. So, um, actually, um, I, I sort of disagree with this. Uh, my take is that um, these, um, these attacks were really uh, Putin's way of trying to break uh, the will of uh, the Ukrainian people. He's under the delusion uh, that uh, if uh, he inflicts enough damage, uh, people will actually want uh, to pursue, Ukrainians will actually want to pursue compromise and negotiations, maybe cede territories. Um, I think it's another miscalculation by him in this regard. It has indeed strengthened um not only Ukraine's resolve, which has always been very, very high to withstand this in- invasion, but it seems that it's counterproductive in terms of strengthening resolve among Ukraine's allies in the West to really support Ukraine to win this war. Um, uh, and Dr. Popova, do you see this as a sign that Putin, that Russia is desperate? Uh, I, I do see it as a sign that they are that they realize that they are losing uh, this war. They have lost momentum. They're losing some of the territories uh, that they gained early on in the invasion. Um, so they they do uh, want to try harder. Doctor Willette, I have uh, seen and heard reports that. Russia is running out of equipment. Uh, do you have corroboration of that? Uh, to some degree, yes. I mean, this depends which equipment we're talking about. Uh, one of the things that surprised a lot of people is uh, all those missiles. Uh, they launched uh, over 80 missiles two days ago and some more today. Um, it's, it's, uh, they're running out of chips to build those kind of new missiles and um, electronic components for building new tanks and new uh, electronic-based equipment. So there's definitely here uh, a lack of uh, of capacity to produce new ones. Apparently, they are uh, starting to buy ammunition, some more standard ammunition from North Korea. I don't know if those reports are true, but if that's the case, it means also their supply chain uh, for more conventional ammunition is also breaking down, which is not very good for Russia. Where would those chips be coming from? Uh, most of them are actually produced in the West, uh, Taiwan, Japan, which uh, they all abided to uh, the uh, the sanctions. So they are um, actually not getting to Russia or only just in, uh, in trickle amount. And have uh, has uh, I would imagine Taiwan or or Korea have, are they committed to not sell any more? Correct, they they are abiding with the the embargo. Uh, I mean, definitely they can. There's still uh, some smuggling that can happen, um, uh, and um, uh, Iran, for instance, are selling equipment, so they may be able to sell some chips. 
but they definitely have um, a shortage of electronic chips for uh, more sophisticated weapons. That's definitely shown on the battlefield. Uh, what about Dr. Popova? What about Ukraine? Do they keep saying that they need more equipment? They need more uh, anti-missile uh, and anti-aircraft equipment. As a matter of fact, when Canada said we're sending forty more people to train, they said we don't need that. We need stuff. Right. Uh, Ukraine has been constantly um asking for more and better military uh equipment in order to be able to wage uh this war to withstand they are in many respects fighting not only for uh Ukrainian sovereignty but also for security uh of Europe so as a result uh of course they do uh ask for uh for more military equipment i think in early in the invasion there was some concern uh, that maybe all this military aid uh, from the West will not go to uh, where it's supposed to go. Maybe there will be corruption. Maybe there will be smuggling. I think eight months into this war, we know that it is being used uh, to its full capacity. There is no uh, significant uh, reports or any reports, really, of smuggling and um, and uh, mis- uh, using uh, this military aid. So the more military aid the West can supply, um, the sooner this war will be over. Hmm. Uh, what about all those nuclear threats that we've heard from Putin over the last few weeks, Dr. Willett? Well, uh, I, I think there's a good uh, part of rhetoric there, although I would be careful to, to not dismiss uh, Mr. Putin's threats completely. Uh, this, uh, but the red lines of uh, attacking Russia in its uh, you know original territory happened several times, and they have not uh, retaliated in any significant way. And uh, to be sure, many Western intelligence agencies are monitoring uh, very closely if there is any moves uh, in the Russian territory with capacity of uh, nuclear capacity being put forward. So far, there's nothing that seems to give that impression. Uh, I already think that uh, the, the true red line for Mr. Putin is if uh, uh, Ukrainian troops would enter in Crimea, this would probably change the equation. Uh, they would be looking at that maybe more uh, more seriously. Hmm. Dr. Popova, your view of that? Yeah, I do agree that uh, for now, uh, we should, of course, be considering these uh, threats, uh, but also not uh, overblow them. Uh, we have to be balanced about it and uh, watch what's going on. Uh, indeed, um, entering uh, Crimea uh, would be the most uh, dangerous uh, moment indeed. But at the same time, we also need to consider uh, that um, allowing nuclear blackmail by authoritarian leaders sort of yielding to their demands because we're afraid of nuclear escalation sends a really bad message for the international community as a whole, for other uh, authoritarian regimes that may have expansionist plans. So we have to tread this. Uh, situation very carefully on on both sides. Uh, Dr. Willett, um, we're starting to wrap things up here. Where do you see things going from here? Uh, we haven't even discussed the situation with the Russian call-up and uh, a lot of young men leaving the country. I mean, is this a new period of escalation or what? 
Well, I think uh, we're uh, the Ukrainians are uh, right now um, um, reorganizing themselves a little bit because uh, they made a very quick advance uh, in the region of Kharkiv and now they're entering in the Lushansk uh, province. And, but I think their supply chain is not followed, so now they have to um, uh, reorganize themselves to be able to continue to, to push forward. Uh, and they will continue to push forward also in the region of Kherson. Uh, again, they're just uh, reorganizing, resupplying, and re-equipping. Um, the question is, will the Russians will be able to stop them? Um, right now, if, uh, if all the reports we have about the very low quality of the troops that are sent there, uh, I don't think they will be able to stop them for a while until they really establish um, better capacity and troops, uh, which means they will have to draw troops from the Far East, um, uh, the, the, the only la- last professional troops they have. If we start to see that, uh, it means that they, uh, the, the, the level of desperation, they reach, a, again, a new high level. Okay. Uh, Dr. Popova, what would you like to leave us with? Um, I very much agree with the last assessment. I think uh, it, Russia will have difficulty uh, mobilizing quality uh, troops to push back. So uh, we are um, seeing Ukraine with momentum in this war, and uh, we'll see how it goes. Okay. Uh, thank you very much, Dr. Eric Willette and Dr. Maria Popova. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you. We're taking a break. And when we come back, October is Breast Cancer Awareness Month. And uh, we are talking to a medical expert who says that screening should be expanded. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. October is Breast Cancer Awareness Month, and the president of the Ontario Association of Radiologists is saying that breast cancer screening all across the country should be expanded to include women in their 40s, and that the current guidelines limiting it to women over 50 can be costing lives. Currently, only four provinces, not including Ontario, offer this screening to women of average risk in the younger cohort. Dr. David Jacobs is a radiologist at Humber River Hospital and president of the Ontario Association of Radiologists, and he joins me now. Hello, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So uh, the guidelines were changed back in 2011 so that only women over 50 would be screened. And at that time, it was said that screening younger women could cause more harm than good because there could be all kinds of false positives. So uh, what's wrong with that guideline? Well, first of all, it's um, based on a flawed study. Uh, so what happened years ago is uh, women were pre-screened with uh, breast examinations by nurses before being put into either the control arm or the screening arm. And what was happening was these nurses were finding breast cancers through palpation and then putting them into the screening arm uh, because they didn't want these women to go uh, undiagnosed. 
So what ended up happening is you ended up putting a lot of patients who were uh, who already had uh, palpable uh, breast cancers or more advanced breast cancers uh, into the screening group, and then the screening group makes out, and then as a result, it looks like screening. Uh, patients doesn't result in in good outcomes because you have so many cancers that have been put into that group. So it uh, it was a flawed study um and as a result uh we have had a very bad policy which costs uh, 13 lives a month in Ontario uh for women under the age of 50. How many uh breast cancers are found in women between the ages of 40 and 50? Well, what we're looking at is about, uh, let me just pull up the numbers here so that I am precise. So 17% of breast cancers are found uh, in women in their 40s, and it represents 27% of life years lost to breast cancer. And the median age of diagnosis of fatal breast cancers is actually 49. So starting at 50, we're missing half of the fatal breast cancers. Uh, that doesn't make a lot of sense for a screening program. Okay, so this is a population screening program. It doesn't include people of high risk. Women of high risk uh, can get screened uh, when they are a lot younger. So mm -hmm. um, isn't it mostly women at high risk who, who contract breast cancer younger? Oh, certainly not. So your risk of contracting breast cancer when you're younger is much higher in the high-risk groups but that high-risk group still only makes up about 8% of the women between 40 and 49 who do develop breast cancer. So their individual risk is much higher than the general population, but they still make up the smallest number, uh, you know, less than 10% of the women who will get breast cancer. So we're missing a lot of women. Mm -hmm. So uh, you're saying um, the fatal breast cancers in women who are in their 40s, uh, what are those numbers? So like I said, about uh, the median age of diagnosis for breast cancer is 49. Uh, in terms of the total number that we see, that will depend province to province based on population size. So I don't have those numbers directly in front of me right now. But we do know that 17% of breast cancers are found in women in their 40s. So how many of those will go on to become fatal breast cancers? Uh, you know, that's that's really what we're talking about. Because when we look at the provinces that do screen in women age 40 to 49, they're finding cancers at a stage one, a much earlier stage, and they find far fewer cancers uh, at stage four. Now, the provinces that don't screen uh, are finding, uh, well, we're not finding those cancers. And so when we look at women in their 50s, what we find is that we're finding far more women who are coming in with stage four cancer as opposed to stage one cancer. And the women who do present with cancers in their 40s in the provinces that don't screen present with more advanced cancers. And that's out of a study done from the uh, University of Ottawa. So we are missing cancers that would otherwise have been detected earlier. And we have to remember that the treatment 
between stage one and stage four is very different, and the prognosis is very different. If we can catch a cancer at stage one, there's a 99.8% survival rate at five years. When we catch it at stage four, that number plummets down to 23%. Right, and then there are two stages in the middle. There are two stages in the middle. Um, When we talk about treatment for stage one versus stage four, we're talking about uh, what can be a simple lumpectomy um, and uh, radiation for stage one versus, uh, and usually we'll sample one or two lymph nodes. With stage four, you're starting off with some pretty harsh chemotherapy, and then you're going through the process. Often it's a, a mastectomy, an axillary node dissection. We're taking all the nodes out, and then you get swelling in the arm called lymphedema, which not everyone gets, but if you do get it, it's quite a crippling complication. So it's much better to catch these cancers early. And uh, then there's also a question but- of, of racial variation. But sorry, go ahead. Uh, What I was going to say is that all breast cancer screening is really backed up because of the pandemic. So uh, what about the timing on this? I mean, the screening that we offer now is backed up. We have the capacity. So we have the capacity. Um, It's a matter of... um, getting people comfortable with coming back to the hospitals, coming back to the clinic, and getting people back into the system. So the lack of screening over the course of the pandemic has been problematic, and it has cost people their opportunity to catch their cancer early, and it will certainly end up costing lives. But uh, I don't think that we should delay screening patients age 40 to 49 because of the lack of screening during a pandemic. I think those are two separate issues. We certainly have the capacity to do do it. I'm going to take a call from Jamie and Coburg. Hello, Jamie. Hello. Hello. Um, I just have a question for the doctor. Um, I was diagnosed with cancer when I was 42 years old, and I'm 62 now. My mother had breast cancer, and she died of 59. So, therefore, my two other sisters are on the Ontario Breast Screening Program. Yeah. And um, so they get this annual reminder and checkup for breast screening because of myself and my mother having a family history of breast cancer. But I don't get anything. No doctor phones reminds me. I'm not on a a program of any kind. Like, I just don't understand that. I just wondered if you could rationalize that at all. Like, yes. um, you so, know, like I, I have to phone, I, I worked at the hospital. I'm retired now, but I, so I'll phone and say, you know, when did I have my last breath? I know I'll do it yearly, but I don't remember what month. So I get, you know, it's up to me to follow up. And I'm thinking here, I had the breast cancer and yeah. I'm just kind of out there with no follow up. It, it is a big problem. So basically what's happened is the Ontario Breast Screening Program is just that. It's a breast screening program. So once you have had a diagnosis of breast cancer, you're no longer part of the OBSP yeah. by definition. So then that falls onto your family doctor or the surgeon to continue to follow you. And I agree with you. I think that it's problematic 
that we don't offer that service or some well, similar wait a minute. service. I, w- I want to weigh in here. I don't know if it's different everywhere. I'm at high risk. I've had breast cancer, uh, and I get notices and appointments every year. Do you? Does your family doctor do nope, it, or your nope, surgeon? Nope, nope, neither. It's oh. from the it's from the uh, breast cancer screening program. Really? Wow. Um, I don't know if they're the ones. I mean, it comes from Sun- Sunnybrook, where I was treated, but I, it's like clockwork. Oh wow, that's good. That's um, interesting. Yeah, because, because I don't see a surgeon anymore or anything. Yeah, you don't need to see doctor. a surgeon. Yeah. But uh, you should get your family doctor to do it. But I guess things are uneven. But uh, mm-hmm. that's, uh, I get it like clockwork. And I get these appointments, you know, a year in advance. Oh, yeah, that's the thing. That's what I would like. And um, because I do know some people that have been diagnosed with the breast cancer, and they just kind of want to put it in the past, and they aren't diligent on on having their yearly checkups, which troubles me that there's kind of a flaw there somewhere. Okay, yeah. well, congratulations on on your twenty years, yeah, and thank uh, you. Thank and you very obviously much. you're on top of it, and that's the yeah. important thing. Yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. Jamie, thank you. Thanks for your call. Yeah, uh, I don't really get that, but it's um, it's definitely I get mine through the screening program because the result comes through them. But it's high risk. I think it might be high risk screening, but but it, um, it, it that's who be, signs would, the note. It would be the high risk screening. So yeah. the OBSP, as as it stands as a screening program, you no longer go through that same pathway anymore. So I, it it sounds like Sunnybrook has their own system. But it's signed OBSP up. when yeah. I get my results. That's what's signed. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, um, so back to the issue of women aged 40 to 49. Uh, so what are you saying? Have you had any kind of response from the province? Well, you know, it's, it's interesting. We've, we had a really good discussion with uh, both Ontario Health and with the Ministry of Health. The Ministry of Health uh, was very open um, and uh, is going to take these issues back and look at them. Um, and uh, they seem to be quite interested in this. Um, Ontario Health is more or less, uh, from what we've seen to this point, sticking to their guns. They are focusing on uh, one study out of Europe that supports their position, and they're also looking at the older study and and hanging their hat on that one. So it's... Um, Interesting to me uh, that that's how the, that that that's their position that they're taking. When the largest group of radiologists uh, out there, the ones who really set the standard of care for North America and the world, that's the American College of Radiologists. They've already said no. We need to start screening at forty. Uh, so it's uh, you know we've got the government. Uh, the Ford government seems interested in 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 this and and in making adjustments. Uh, the Ontario Health is digging their heels in a bit, but we hope that they come around to the data as it is present today. Okay, uh, Doctor David Jacobs, thank you very much for that, and uh, we'll have to see how this develops. Thanks so much for your time. Bye bye. And that is all the time we have for today. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. 
Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.